I still think that that's a very difficult problem, real-time sensing, real-time interaction. You know, any any human, you know, with 10 minutes of training can probably fold laundry. Yet there isn't a single robot in the world that can fold laundry at anything close to human speed. And we've seen this, right? Like autonomous vehicles turned out to be way harder than anybody expected. Way, way, way harder than anybody expected. So, you know, I really think that, you know, if your domain is is pixels and words, you can make it look pretty convincing. But if your domain is sensing the real world with high accuracy, making sensible decisions in very constrained and time-limited environments, that's a different game altogether. That was the voice of Walid Qadus, Chief Scientist at Anyscale. I am your host, Ali Zweil, and this is the Startups Arabia podcast, where you learn about the Arab startups ecosystem from the best founders, investors, and operators in the region. Welcome to the Startups Arabia podcast. My guest today is Dr. Walid Qadus, Chief Scientist at Anyscale, the company behind the open source distributed computing platform, Ray. He leads the company's LLM efforts. Prior to Anyscale, Walid worked at Uber, where he led overall system architecture, evangelized machine learning, and led the location and maps teams. He previously worked at Google, where he founded the Android location and sensing team, responsible for the blue dot, as well as ML algorithms underlying products like Google Fit. He also holds more than 40 patents. If you're interested in large language models, and who isn't these days, this conversation is for you. We go pretty deep into how to work with them and how to build on them. But also, this conversation is interesting because we go into Walid's experience working at Google and at Uber uh, at the very highest of levels and uh, contrasting uh, the founders of these two companies, Larry Page and Travis Kalanick, the culture between them, the transition uh, from one phase of a company's life to another at this very large global scale. It's an incredibly enjoyable conversation. Welcome to the Startups Arabia podcast. My guest today is Walid Qadus, Chief Scientist at Anyscale. I am so happy to meet him today because uh, I've actually used products that he has had a significant hand in today. Uh, and I usually use them every day. He, he's someone who's worked uh, on Google Maps, on Uber uh, Maps as well. So, I mean, every single one of the listeners has probably uh, touched code that Walid has written or um, uh, influenced in one way or another. And now he's doing something really cool at any scale. And I think this is probably going to be one of the most technical uh, podcasts uh, we've ever had, but also a really fun one I'm looking forward to. Uh, welcome, Walid. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. Um, thank you very much for the invitation, Ali. It's uh, it's great to talk to you today. Great. Um, all right. So maybe we can start. Uh, you started your professional life. You, you studied uh, your undergraduate in uh, in Australia, and uh, and your PhD also there. But and then you ended up at some point in your life, you know, uh, at Google and Uber and uh, you know, and that world of tech startups uh, in Silicon Valley. So can you like briefly tell us how how that story went? 
Yeah, so I was born and raised in Australia from Egyptian heritage. Um, uh, I completed my PhD in artificial intelligence in like 2000. And this was before, you know, the argument when, when I told people I was working on AI, there's like, but there's no commercial applications of AI. Here we are 25 years <laughs> later. And somehow, guess, what? Uh, guess what? Exactly. Um, after I finished my PhD, I did two fellowships at the same university, one in uh, robotics and another one in natural language understanding. Um, but it took me a while to work out that actually I, I didn't like the academic world that much and I wasn't that good at it. So after a while, I started looking at other opportunities. I interviewed for Google Australia, but ended up getting a role in Google in the US. And uh, I joined a, a really interesting group that was on the edge between research and production. You know, they just spun out of Stanford and they were trying to make their own maps that didn't belong to like one of the maps providers because that would allow Google to really do some amazing things like super fresh maps. And, you know, completed my first project there. And, you know, I think the, the time when I said, you know, I, I really, I'm glad I made this choice is when I realized that something like 10 million users were using the maps that we had generated. And that was, that was such an addictive feeling. Of course, now like it's 250 million. But the point is just that, that sense of impact that you get from working in a corporate environment, I found very addictive. I uh, worked on other things, including Google's research lab called Google X at the time on indoor location and helped to launch uh, indoor location on Google Maps. Um, and then I took on a role in Android, the Android operating system. And we were responsible for making the blue dot that you see when you open Google Maps really good. That was our job. But we also started, that was the time that AI started to come back into my life. And we started to do things like activity recognition. Can you use the phone to detect if someone is walking or running? You know, can you detect, you know, we also worked on things like, you know, can we detect um, uh, when someone has fallen, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then after a while, you know, this is after eight years, got the principal engineer at, at, um, at Google, but started to feel Google was getting a bit slow. So uh, I moved to Uber, starting on the location team, but um, soon after I took over, like leading the engineering of the maps team. And then, you know, funny things happen at startups. So Uber was really, really great for, for Velocity. It was, a, it was an execution machine. Like they were really pumping out features. But the problem was that, you know, uh, if you move that fast, eventually your technical debt catches up with you. And your technical, our technical debt at, at Uber got so bad that um, we were having to hire people just to kind of keep up with systems, let alone adding new features. So I worked with the CTO at the time to kind of drive an effort at uh, Uber to reduce our technical debt. And, um, you know, that was, it was really scary because at the time we had like, many of you remember the microservices revolution. And Uber had kind of gone microservices crazy. We had ended up with 4,000 microservices and 2,000 engineers. In other words, two microservices per engineer. That's not a healthy ratio. And so basically what happened is this really bad anti-pattern started to happen where instead of thinking about your microservice architecture, you would write one more microservice architecture to support a feature. And it just got like into a craziness. So, you know, we gathered engineers across the company to kind of pivot that and, and fix fix that architecture. And then, you know, as that came to an end, I, I kind of went, I decided um, I wanted to try the startup world. And so the opportunity at Anyscale originally as head of engineering kind of opened up and I was like, Anyscale was really, really interesting to me. Um, you know, um, 
one of the things in AI that's really hard is to really push the limits. You need to use multiple computers at once. And as anyone who's known, known, knows, you know, who's done AI, distributed computing is really hard. Getting computers to coordinate in a performant way is like painfully difficult. And I remember, because I started on this in my PhD when I was trying to get final results, um, you know, I had to kind of build my own cluster of machines and wrote my own like really hacky scripts to do it. It was incredibly painful. And, you know, Anyscale came out with this technology called Ray. You know, that's really the tech that was built at Berkeley that made it easy. And, you know, I think I fell in love with Ray when, you know, I used a particular type of machine learning called decision trees. Maybe we're getting a bit too technical here. Let me know no, no. if I am. But, um, but, you know, I had tried to parallelize decision trees for years. And it's a really hard thing to parallelize because it's kind of like it's a divide and conquer algorithm. In other words, you take your data, you split it in half, you just, you take your and you take each half and divide it. That doesn't fit into normal distributed computing models. But when in the space of three hours, I was able to implement it and show a performance gain of 60% on my machine. And then I was able to scale up to eight machines and see like 50% of them theoretical maximum. You know, in other words, when I use 32 processes, it was as if I had 16 processes. I was like, okay, this, this tech is for real. So I ended up joining the company originally to head engineering. And then, and then I like many of you, something magical happened in November 2022, right? ChatGPT came out and it's like the world kind of woke up. And um, at the time, I you know, kind of built engineering up from 25 to 75 people. I built my second layer of managers up and you know, I was able to find someone to hand it over. And I went to the founder, Jan Stoika, who's a very famous uh, Berkeley professor, and said, look, we're not, this is going to be hard. So just let me step down. I'll become chief scientist and I'll drive the large language model transition for the company. And basically since March 2023, that's, that's what I've been doing. Taking that company, you know, Ray was a very good general purpose technology, but the LLM and Gen AI revolution was so intense that, you know, I remember a blog post that I put out, right? So we were normal, like it was normal for us. We were very well respected within the machine learning and data science community. But, you know, so we would put out a blog post and we get like two and a half thousand views, right? So that was a signal to us as the size of the market. I put out one blog post called um, Numbers Every LLM Developer Should Know. And it blew, like, it blew everything away, right? It was like we started to get 40,000 views on that article. And suddenly we realized that the scope of people who were interested in LLMs was just six, seven times as large as the, the, the scope of people that were really interested in machine learning distributed and infrastructure and ML ops and all of that kind of stuff. So we made a hard, I mean, maybe you'd call it a pivot, maybe you'd call it like refocusing or whatever. The technology underneath didn't change, but the way that we interacted with our customer changed completely. You know, we often started to offer, you know, new products. And we also had to change the culture of the company, right? Like at this time, there was 100 people at any scale. And a lot of them didn't understand LLMs, didn't understand the potential of LLMs, and really weren't think, thinking about things in, you know, LLM-specific ways or generative AI-specific ways. So... Um, you know, I, I led that effort to kind of change the culture. And now Anyscale is one of the leading uh, voices in um, 
inference with large language models. You know, we offer, you know, they offer very good prices. Um, we offer things like fine tuning and it's a very intense competition between us and companies like um, Fireworks, Together, um, uh, Replicate, you know. So these are the companies that serve open source large language models and it's like a very, very competitive environment. But we're kind of at the forefront of that now, developing like very clever algorithms because we we use all of the experience that we had for doing distributed computing before and we're able to translate that to large language models. And that's kind of, you know, some of the things that I've worked on. Maybe it's a bit long-winded, but uh, no, that's about as I can summarize 15 years in. No, it is not long-winded. <laughs> it's actually interesting. And um, it's interesting how you, you your timing was kind of right, even though it wasn't like focused on the right exact specific things, but you were yeah. kind of ready with all the components. But yeah. it, I think it took some courage to kind of drop everything and and shift the whole company uh, in a new direc direction. Uh, yeah. Luckily, with all the, I think, VC support and all the buzz around LLMs, thanks to ChatGPT, uh, th th there was probably, I mean, I can imagine that if you tried to do that in 2022, uh you, you would have had much more resistance from your board and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, ob, you know, it might seem like an obvious decision in retrospect, but, you know, that's life at a startup, right? At, at the time, it's like we have real customers paying for our traditional products. And, exactly. you, know, they're, you know, they're very respected, you know, and it's big name companies, you know, Fortune, one, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Why would you choose to pivot? And it's just... Yeah the growth opportunities were so much more, you know, the, the, the way I think about it is I actually looked up the numbers and there's about half a million machine learning, data scientists, infrastructure engineering type people in the world. There's about 25 million developers. So we kind of looked at those numbers and we said, you know, in the future, almost every developer is going to be doing things with LLM at one stage or another, right? If it's not them using LLMs to develop their code, it's going to be them deploying products that use large language models. And we just said, yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of internal debate, you know, inevitably, as, as, as you can imagine, when you kind of do things like that. And, you know, but like you said, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, uh, when, when, a, when a music band is successful, all of a sudden, um, you know, you, you often hear the people there saying, yeah, it took us like 10 years to be an overnight success, right? Exactly. And uh, that, that's how it felt, right? It's just like we've been working on things in the background And then when the large language model came, like with large language models, you have to deal with the scale question from day one, right? Like these models take, the, the, the really good models take like four GPUs working together to, to kind of produce one answer. And so it kind of pushed this scale question, you know, into the forefront. And because we've been focused on machine learning uh, and scalable machine learning for such a long time, we were able to redirect very quickly. But it's only because of the foundations we, we built over the preceding three to four years that it enabled us to make this pivot um, very, very, very quickly. Um, again, it's not really a pivot. Like we, um, well, you know, it is it's a, a type of, I mean, a focus pivot. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's actually, a, you know, the, the, there's actually a name for it, but I can't remember it right now. <laughs> Zoom in pivot, right? That's, yeah, that's what, uh, like that. what it was called in the Lean Startup. So, 
and, and, I, and I would say it took a lot of courage, to be honest, because a lot of people in that situation would have said, okay, half of the resources will focus on NLMs and the rest will do this and we'll have two business units and do that. And that would have not cut it because the other competitors who are focused would have won the market share. So, yeah, I mean, cool, really cool story. So, I mean, you know, maybe drilling down on, on any scale, it's kind of similar to Databricks. It started in Berkeley as an open source project. So, you know, with uh, acad- academic background, co-founders and, and things like that. And then it became a startup. Is that kind of a startup different in terms of maybe culture or process or the way it works than, say, in Uber or uh, Google? Yeah, it is. I mean, um, very different to Uber. Well, it's kind of like a hybrid, right? Like um, the deep technical details that you get from a place like Google, they were there. And the execution focus that you got from Uber, that was there. But, you know, in, in many ways, it has characteristics of both of my past experiences, right? One was the execution focus and one was the deep technical focus. So there was a, a respect for, like, deep technical work. Um, but it's definitely, like, the way that I think about it is that a startup can fail for two for three essential reasons, right? The first one is um, execution risk. You were not able to execute on the plan because you didn't build the team right or, you know, whatever else. Um Product risk, like you built a really functional thing as defined, but the market didn't want it. And finally, you know, with with Uber and, you know, with Uber that, you know, those two were present, but the execution risk was dealt with. And within, you know, six months, the, the, the product risk was dealt with, right? So it was like most of the risk of the startup had been averted. When you do a startup like the one we're doing at, you know, at any scale, there's a third type of risk called research risk, right? Which is nobody knows if the problem that you're trying to solve can even be solved, right? And, uh, you know, you have to balance that with kind of the, 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 the practical problems of, of selling a product, right? And, you know, many of the things that we tackled, we thought, you know, uh, you know, we took wrong directions in engineering quite a few times. Um, and so I think what happens is at a place like this that has that university DNA, there is an element of um, research risk, like can this problem be solved? Can you actually make distributed computing both efficient and easy to use? That's a 30-year-old question in computer science, right? And maybe Maybe more, maybe more, (laughs) you know? Um, It's always been a challenge of performance versus uh, um, ease of use when it comes to distributed computing. And so there's a, this third element of risk that, you know, comes into it. I feel like now we're still, we're more focused on the execution and product risk aspects. But, you know, I, I find this kind of model of like execution risk, product risk and research risk to be a useful model for any startup to kind of look at, you know, where are we facing the challenges? Um, and, um, you know, different startups can succeed or fail for any of the reasons on, on that axis, right? Right. Along those three different axes. So, I mean, you mentioned that this is like a 30-year-old problem and uh, it's been there for a while. Uh, Paralyzing complex workloads is is very difficult. Uh, Nobody has really been able to make it easy in uh, the way Ray has. So what was, like, can you give me some background? What was, like, the the key unlock? What was the key insight that that made Ray possible in the first place? 
I think it was the, the heart of Ray is a very complex technical thing called the, a global scheduler, right? So when you have work that you want to parallelize, you need something that does the coordination. And the usual problem is starting a new task or new, new thread of work across multiple computers is really, really tricky. But this group worked out how to build an efficient combination of a global and a local scheduler where there's a bias towards doing things locally. But you know, if that local machine kind of gets overloaded, you can start to move the workload to other machines and you can add new machines to the cluster. It's really this aspect of how do you build such a thing, right? Um, it's hard enough to build a scheduler on a single machine, but over years they built this really good design. Um, and I think at, at the heart of the success of Ray, the open source project that Anyscale kind of is the, the, co the company behind, is a certain ambition about tackling this problem that's 30 years old. And um, I still remember when I read the white paper for um, Anyscale, it was like, there was this line in there that said something like, given the choice between architectural complexity and API simplicity, we will choose API simplicity. And that one line was both one of the most interesting reasons to be at the company and the thing that gave me like nightmares <laughs> because actually dealing with that level of architect, like at its core, Ray is actually a fairly complex system. And usually when you're like doing systems work, you actually want simple systems with clean abstractions and all that kind of stuff and simple cases. But at the heart of Ray is actually fairly complex. You do things like distributed reference counting to make sure, you know, that's as scary as it does. Most of us are used to doing reference counting on a single machine. You know, that's at the heart of things like Python. But now you have to do reference counting across multiple machines. Many of us are used to having like an object memory. But what happens when you distribute that object memory across multiple machines? So at its heart, it's, it's like we've developed these techniques over time Let's bring them together to, to tackle this ambitious goal. And it's not perfect. It's still, you know, I'd say Ray is amazing um, and has improved significantly. But there's still, you really, you know, I would say it's, it's still not perfect because it's a somewhat leaky abstraction. You still need to know a little bit about how Ray works to take full advantage. But the nice thing is that Ray has been increasingly adopted by library writers um, in the machine learning and AI community. And that's kind of taken the burden off us, right? Because then it's only the people who are writing the machine learning libraries that really need to understand the complexities of Ray. You can then just go and use the library and that person's hard work to kind of solve your problems. And uh, it's really the ecosystem around Ray and the libraries that support Ray. Um, some of them written by any scale, you know, but some of them also written by the community as a whole. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's the power of open source. So, um, and, you know, you, you touched upon this a little bit. You joined Anyscale at a relatively early time. So it was founded in 2019. You, I think you joined January 21. Um, and versus, you know, Uber and Google, which you joined later on in their stories. How has that been different? How have you experienced that differently? Yeah. Um, I often think in retrospect that I did it in the wrong order. <laughs> That, you know, what I should have done is started a small startup and then worked my way up to bigger companies. But, you know, everything informs what you do. I think the, the key things are uh, the pace and uh, of execution is much faster. But I think as a learning experience, startups are wonderful too because you get to, if you think of yourself as having a certain scope, right, like managing 20 people, let's say, right, 
if you manage 20 people at a company like Google, you're, you're managing 0.0001% of their workforce, right? Because there's 200,000 engineers at Google, right? If you're managing 20 engineers at a startup, like any scale, that's like a quarter of the team, a third of the team. You need to kind of, and, and so just the, the level of thinking that you have to perform about who are our customers and, you know, what are the details? It's just, um, you know, it's, it's a very different thing. The other thing to say, I mean, it's not, uncondi- one's not unconditionally better, right? It's just, you know, definitely the experiences that I had at Google, just seeing like how to build quality systems, that was invaluable. Um, and so we tried to replicate that. So um, a lot of the effort we put in as I built the engineering team was about instilling a culture of excellence and um, and really holding a high bar for quality. And, and um, you know, that, you know, really coming, mixing the two cultures, right? So, you know, when I first joined, it was very much a lot of graduates from Berkeley who the, the people knew. It was very monolithic, mostly, you know, males of a certain age, right? And then we started to bring in experts from other areas, from people like Google and Facebook and, you know, all of those other people who just had a bit more engineering kind of seasoning, for lack of a better term. And doing that culture change kind of allowed us to, to, to kind of evolve. So usually one of the things you find is that a, a company like Google, most of the things like the engineering ladder and like promotion and all that kind of stuff is kind of defined. When you're at a startup, part of your responsibility as one of the early people is to define the culture of a company. And, and, and uh, that is not an easy exercise, right? Um, so, so I think there's a lot more building and not just building of the technical aspects of, um, of things early in the life of a startup. You have to build all of the things that a company like Google built 10 years, 20 years before, right? Um, right. I think, yeah, but that's kind of the exciting part of it, right? Because exactly. you can take what you like about your experiences at Google and Uber and other places and, you know, you can bring everybody from every corner of the kind of startup world and kind of medium size all the way up and everyone kind of mixes their expertise together and um, you get something much stronger that way. Um, you know, I think diversity is, you know, kind of an overused term. And, but really, you know, if you think about it, um, you know, aside from gender diversity and all of those kinds of things, diversity of background is very critical because, so, you know, there's a lot of really interesting research that shows that homogeneous groups are much more smooth, but they're not as effective as heterogeneous groups. So, of course, you know, the, the challenge is that, of course, there's going to be like a bit of cultural friction between, you know, the freewheeling academic style you know, well, I built the prototype and I threw the, the, the code on the web uh, versus kind of the, wait, you know, I was dealing with, a, you know, a, a system that dealt with 3 million QPS. You can't, you know, so there's always that kind of friction, but the, the, the beauty and the joy, you know, the where things work is where you bring those two worlds together. And if you're lucky, you can maintain the execution speed uh, of the, the youthfulness with the, with the, maturity and not heading down the dead ends of someone who's had the experience, right? And it comes from a mutual respect for one another. But again, it was like, this is the fun part of a startup. You have to solve whatever problem comes along. And because you're a much bigger fish in a smaller pond, you learn much more quickly. You know, at any scale, I wasn't, I was on the executive team, right? Like, so, you know, 
I had to learn about sales. I had to learn about marketing. I had to, you know, understand how we build a product organization. How do we set the right cultural balance between product management and engineering and get those two teams to work together? Where do we pull in design? You know, um, all of those kinds of questions are struggles that you faced as a startup that you don't start, you face at a larger company. So, I mean, I think you learn much faster at a startup, to be honest. But, you know, it, I mean, everybody has to choose what's good for them. You know, maybe you're in a stage of life where you can't deal with the financial risk of being at a startup and you need, you know, you need the income that you get from working at one of these large companies. But you know, so there's no judgment there. It's just no. throughout life we have to make different choices about, you know, what we want to work on and the different styles of places yeah. we work on. That's the beauty of diversity, right? And uh, and yeah, I mean, startups are learning machines essentially. So it's really cool to be in one uh, if you're just if you go with the flow and, and keep learning and keep uh, adding value. So yeah. I mean, I think one other thing I'd highlight is the type of people who succeed as a startup are a little bit different. So actually, you know, one of the things we learned the hard way was there are many people who can be successful in an environment like Google. And like we're, you know, very highly ranked at Google. And then you bring them to into a startup where you need to have much more levels of autonomy and self-drive. And they, they, they don't do well in the environment, even though you know they're technically brilliant. There's just, right. startup is a very challenging environment. Yeah, I, I would definitely underline that. I mean, my, my first startup, uh, I hired some people who were really brilliant in terms of before that I was in the corporate world managing like a big technical team and and all that so that so I chose people kind of with the same lens and they didn't do very well and I, I wouldn't say it's even about autonomy but but it's just like you just when you're in the when you're delivering on a product that's been there for a long time it's all about dependability and and delivering you know as per spec and things like that And the startup needs exactly the opposite. It needs someone who is creative and, and flexible and will uh, notice that the customer really needs something else than what you're working on and, and raise the flag and, and maybe take the initiative to do something. So they're actually very different personalities. Most, both of them might be autonomous like and, and responsible in their right environment. But in, an, in the other environment, there's simply, it's just difficult to cope. And it's very dangerous to hire with the, with the lens of the corporate in the, into the startup. Uh, even though, I mean, some people do make the transition, but they are rare. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think I'd, uh, another thing I'd like to, to highlight is one of the big differences is comfort with failure, right? Like um, if you're in a big company and you're kind of one of these people who's had like a very linear progression through life, you got into a good university, you went through, you joined Google and you worked your way. Suddenly you're thrust into this environment where you can do everything right and it still fails, right? You know, it might be competition, right? So you have to kind of take an experimental mindset and say, look, I don't understand exactly how people are going to use our product. So let's try something and it doesn't work. Let's try something else, right? Whereas very much the, the, the problem at a place like Google is, is the problem is well understood. If I think back to product risk and execution risk, there's really not, not a lot of risk you know, at a place like Google is even the execution risk is kind of dealt with because you have that, you know, recruiting machine, you've got great people. To work with, all that kind of so it's also has to be a comfort with failure. And it's not like failure of the startup as a whole. I mean, start, startups are like 
failure machines, like you said, right? Like you kind of stumble your way through until you find something that works. It's kind of like, a, you know, a random walk through, hopefully a little bit better than a random walk, but, you know, kind of like this random walk through the space till you find something that clicks, right? And so it's it's not a lot of people are, are, are adept at, you know, switching to that, you know, um, when you have these new types of risks that you weren't, you know, dealing with before. Exactly. So, I mean, now, now that we're like comparing cultures, uh, you worked in two very different cultures. I mean, Google and Uber, these yeah. are like totally different types of companies, uh, at least from what I hear. Um, how, how did you, I mean, how did you experience that? What, what are your reflections on, on the contrast there? Well, I mean, yes, I, <laughs> the, the transition was somewhat difficult, right? And again, you know, um, it was it was a really difficult transition because you know you kind of assume that Google everything is done right at Google, right? But you start to realize no, there were, there are some issues at Google. I think the 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 main one was execution speed, right? So you just like I'll give you an example at Google. To ship a product, you had, they had this system called LaunchCal, which is the launch calendar. And before you could launch, everybody had to kind of sign off before you launched. And there was about 40 people who had to sign off, you know, everyone from legal to internationalization to the VP of this to the... And so launching stuff, you know, just became very, very difficult. And it makes sense for Google, right? Because, because um, you know, there's so much at stake. That search page, you change one pixel and it's a $3 million, $5 million per day difference, right? Like, so it's the right setup for them, right? We have to have all of this ultra caution um, stuff, right? At Uber, because it was much newer, it was just like the Wild West, right? It was like teams would do things, you know, sometimes, you know, one example of this going crazy was at one point there was this... Um, there was like a bar for notifications at the top of the Uber app, right? And every team would just put something in the bar. And so it ended up that those notifications were like two thirds of the screen and the map was at the bottom, right? Because every team was just kind of like pushing stuff out and no one was kind of looking, you know, at the overall experience. Now that was something that was fixed, but it gives you an idea of like how these, these different, different modes operated. But it's just this, this spirit of fast execution. Also, you know, I think Google started without much competition and it was far in the head of everyone else. Uber was in like a, you know, down and dirty, like street fight almost, you know, for market share. You know, it got bruised and battered a few times, like its whole experience in China, for example, right? Where they went in, guns blazing, and then local, and then the, you know. So, um, you know, they were very, I, I think one thing that I've learned is, you know, the impact of competition on, on a company's culture, right? Um, and, uh, you know, of course, things were very turbulent at Uber, right? Like we had two CEOs, you know, there was, you know, there was a time at Uber when um, reading the front page of the New York Times was more informative about what was happening inside your company than kind of going to the all hands, right? Um, and different board members leaking things. So it was, it was completely insane. We like, you'd go to an all hands and literally the all hands, someone, you know, Someone like Mike Isaac is watching the all hands in real time and blogging the contents of the. It was, it was completely crazy. So, you know, different different things. And you, the idea is that you talk, uh, you you pick up the best from each of them. I think one thing again is just realizing that Google was a walled garden. You know, and another thing, technically speaking, but Uber was almost entirely built on open source, right? And 
you know, I went from like Google had its own terminology and very well crafted things. You know, the the way Eric Raymond describes it is cathedral, you know, very much well designed and everything to Uber, which was very much like a bazaar. It's just like complete mess, more like a rather than being organized, it's more like an ecosystem of different different forces operating, right? So um you know, I think that also is, is something that was a, 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 you know, so I had to relearn all of the terminology. Oh, you know, this is this, this thing in Google, you know, a big, you know, big file or whatever. This is what they call HDFS in open source. And uh, so, you know, one of the great things about um, Uber was they not only used open source, they actually, when I look at how many companies spun out of Uber that were open source related, you know, Chronosphere, which is a very popular logging system, Cadence, which is kind of like a, a general um, um, system for executing things with guarantees. You know, it was actually a very fruitful place. And on one side, you could say, well, all of that value was lost. But on the other hand, you can say that kind of very flourishing kind of crazy environment where no one was really in charge. Um, it was also like a very fruitful environment that led to a lot of innovation. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the trick is just to keep it from exploding, like with technical debt or whatever. But but if you can manage to keep it going that way, they'll be great. Yeah. In terms of innovation. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's very interesting as well, you know, how, how it reflects almost the personalities of the founders as well, I think, both at Google and at uh, Uber. Yeah, I think so. Um Again, yeah, like uh, I got, uh, I was very fortunate to work with both Larry Page and um, Travis Kalanick. Very, very different personalities. Larry Page was, you know, um, very, very forward thinking. In some ways, he was very hard to work with because he lived in the future. So we would come to him with ideas that we thought were really powerful and he'd be like, you guys are smoking crack. That's that's not a great idea. Um, but, you know, he really thought about innovation very systematically. Um, and Travis was more like a very good tactician. You know, um, our competitors move X, we do Y. And, you know, you're always trying to bridge the gap between someone who lives far in the future and, um, you know, someone like Travis, who we were trying to bring AI into Uber and we're trying to explain why he should make a forward investment in AI. And so, it, you know, there's always challenges, you know, um, the CEO's kind of philosophy about the future really has a huge impact about strategic versus tactical decisions. And, you know, I think Larry, you know, Larry Page left, you know, stopped being involved in Google day to day by like 2017. But, you know, he, he made the big bets. He, uh, he really did. Like he bought YouTube. I remember when Larry bought YouTube for $1.8 billion and people said, $1.8 billion for YouTube? And now it's like very clear that he saw the future. The same thing with Android, the same thing with Chrome, right? Like he's the one who drove those forward investments and really thought about the long term. So, um, yeah, I mean, it really does make a big difference the, 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 for, for better or worse, right? Like Travis, Travis was also, how do I put this, pretty morally flexible, Maybe, maybe that's the best way to put it. <laughs> you know, diplomatic um, way to put it. Yes. Um, so, you know, and that cost the company as well, because again, you know, this, um, yeah. you know, and cost the, him personally. Yeah, it cost him personally as well. But also things like there was a much more 
like uh, Google had a more collective structure, um, which and consensus-driven structure, which slows you down, but in some ways in the long term pays off. Whereas um, Uber had much more individualistic culture, and you know everything was built around that. Even the compensation system was, you know, but that also led to kind of people focusing not necessarily on optimizing for the company as a whole, but for their own career, right? So. For, for better or worse, you know, the, the, the characteristics of the founders are, are like um, reflected in the DNA of the company. Yeah, and, and it's uh, and that's why it's been fascinating to watch Dara and, his, and what he has done at the company, you know, and he's kind of turning it into a different company and just moving a culture is very hard, but I think he's doing a pretty impressive job and they're finally profitable this year. Yeah. Uh, so. I mean, I think there was, a, I mean, you know, everybody has opinions and opinions are very easy to come by, but there wasn't, I, I think Uber has become a very successful operational company, right? But there was a moment when it could have been more, right? When it could have been like mm. a great technical company, uh, you know, or there were more ambitions, right? And, and you know, again... I feel like at that point when Dara let, when, when Dara took over, there's no doubt that he solved a lot of the problems, right? Like there was there was some crazy stuff with legal cases between Google on autonomous vehicles, and Dara just very methodically removed every little obstacle. He, you just see these news bulletins come out that say, "Okay, problem X has been fixed, problem Y has been fixed," and you knew that Dara had just worked to said, "What's the biggest problem I need to solve to first get us to IPO, and then get us to profitability." Whereas Travis had like a lot of ambition and was willing to take on, you know, new challenges um, and gave engineering the space to do that, right? So um, I think, you know, Uber is a successful company. Um, you can have a discussion about whether it's a successful operations company or a successful tech company. Um, you know, um, it's probably one of the most capital intensive businesses, you know, that, that you can, I mean, you know, there's a, a lot of real world dealing with atoms in the real world versus bits, just bits, which is what something like Google has to do. It's just a very, very challenging thing. And it's hard to maintain growth, right? Like you run out of atoms, you run out of cities to launch in, right? Constraints are much so, more physical. Yes. Um, and probably what made Travis like the right person for it. At the time. Yeah, I don't think um, it would have... Um, you know, there's a question of who's the right leader at a given at a particular time. It's not always the same same person. You know, um, I like Ben Ben Horowitz, who again, you know, I've had the good chance. He's on the board of Anyscale. You know, oh. he has this piece where he describes um, wartime leaders versus peacetime leaders. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And wartime leaders are much more command driven. You know, this is the direction we're going in. If you have a different opinion, I'll listen, but I have to be much more this. Whereas, you know, kind of the peacetime is the fostering type person. And you have to make sure that, you know, the best leaders can can flip between wartime and lead time, uh, peacetime. But most people, most managers tend towards one or the other, right? Um, and so, you know, very clear that Travis was a wartime leader and also very clear that Dara was a peacetime leader, right? With that, all yep. the characteristics, you know, that come with it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... You know, the right leader at a particular time for a startup now may not be the right leader two years from now. And uh, that's 
also something that you know you learn as you observe the life cycle of other startups. Yeah, and even countries. Um, yeah, yeah. So let's maybe go down a more technical uh, tack. So uh, I've heard you say about uh, talk about uh, that, like having an open source model that's fine tuned uh, can give you the same performance or better than you know the top like GPT four kind of performance uh, of a of a you know closed source uh, model. Um, so, I mean, and that's great to hear, fine-tuning it with your data and stuff, but what exactly is fine-tuning? Because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of um, talking with the voice of, you know, f- founders-to-be in the region here who, who want to build yeah. uh, relevant so, startups. Um, so, so be prepared for some controversial opinions at this particular point, and maybe not everyone agrees with me. Please. Um, so first, let's talk about open source versus closed source and my, why you might want to use one or the other, right? So when we talk about uh, closed models, forget the name. The name is misleading. OpenAI is the leading example of a closed model, right? We don't know how GPT-4 works unless it's been leaked. Um, you know, OpenAI released a document that describes GPT-4, and it was like one person summarized it as, well, we used Python, right? It was, they, they shared very little about, you know, how it was worked. Um, um, and on the other hand, you have open models like uh, Llama from Facebook, but also there's startups in France like Mistral. And even in the uh, in the Arab world, there's the Technical Innovation Institute that's released the Falcon models, right? So um, these are open models that anyone can download, anyone can run. Some of them have different restrictions on them. But the thing is, you can build your own version of it. You can see exactly how it's built. You know, there's a lot better understanding. You have deployment flexibility, like you can deploy it in your own on-prem or you know, you can pack it with your binary or whatever else you want, right? So it's it's very clear and transparent what's happening. You have control over where it's deployed. And frankly, it's cheaper. So that's, pro, you know, problem number one. You know, that's the, the, those are the main three reasons why people end up using open source models. Just to give people an idea of how cheap, uh, I think you mentioned that you got the same performance out of Llama 270B, a fine-tuned, and GPT-4 for... And GPT-4 was 30 times the cost. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in that particular case, you know, what we did is there's a process called fine-tuning where you take examples. And even though the model has been built, you can kind of tweak some of the parameters, right? Um, And so what we did is one of the typical things you want to do with these language models, a very common task, is you have a database and you have natural language. And you want to connect the natural language to talking to the database. So you write a natural language to SQL converter. Um, and you know, you could you could use GPT-4 as a natural language to SQL converter. And out of the box, it gets 84, 87% accuracy, right? Which is really great. You go and you use something cheap like Llama 2 7B, which costs 15 cents per million tokens. It's like it used to be one two hundredth the cost, and now maybe it's one one hundredth the cost. You do this fine-tuning process on it. Um, and all of a sudden it, it, it outperforms. It goes from like 17%, which is useless, to 93% or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. But fine-tuning is one way that you can use these open models to create things that are more useful. And right now within this industry, there's, there's actually an argument about LLMs versus SSMs, right? Large language models versus small specific models. 
Uh, I think it's one of two trends. Maybe if we have some time at the end, we can talk about mixture of experts, which is the other trend that I'm seeing that's really interesting. Um, but the other thing is I fear that what fine-tuning can do has been overpromised. And so you shouldn't just say, oh, I'm going to collect some data and I'm going to fine-tune. That's, that's not how fine-tuning works. The way that I described it is that fine-tuning is for the form of the output. So let's say that you, um, you, you're trying to build a, a thing that automatically generates resumes, right, from someone's LinkedIn page or something like that. Then it's very easy because that's mostly a format thing, right, the, the type of language that you use, all of those types of things. What you can't use fine-tuning for is for facts. And that's really where another technique called retrieval augmented generation, it's called RAG, where basically what you do is you you have a database or you know, of, of information, or it could be like um, what's called a semantic index that uses a technique that's related to large language models called embedding to do a search of relevant information. And you give the LLM not just, please give me an answer, but by the way, I looked this up in our data sources and here are four, four different things that you can do, right? Um, so maybe I can talk a little bit about how I have a side project called Ansari, which is like a, a system for answering questions about Islam. Um, but um, the point is, fine-tuning is good for making the shape right or the form or the words used. You know, let, let's take Shakespeare, right? If you, if you want to make your output sound like it was written by Shakespeare, fine-tuning is perfect. If you want to convince it that it wasn't Romeo and Juliet, but Bob and Juliet, fine-tuning is not going to help you. And we actually demonstrated this experimentally, right? So really, it's about, think about this suite of different options for what's called domain-specific model refinement. How do we take, you know, after we've deployed the model, how do we make it better over time? And fine-tuning is one example, but retrieval augmented generation is another example. And then, you know, you can go all the way up the stack of complexity, you know, you know, where the last things are kind of like reinforcement learning through human feedback and then training your own models from scratch, right? But, you know, as you move yourself around, you can really kind of, um, um, you really need to think about what's the problem that I'm having with my large language model and how do I fix it? So um, I wrote a blog post about that called, you know, fine tuning is for form, not facts. If you want to look it up and it gives like a broader discussion of like understanding the limits of fine tuning. What we've actually seen is that people aren't actually doing fine tuning that much now, um, but almost everyone. Retrieval augmented generation is really the thing that's kind of gaining right. momentum. And it's not that fine tuning is useless. It's that you need to know what to use fine tuning for and what to use retrieval augmented generation for. Um, right. Yeah. So you know, each each has its different purpose. And you know, the you know the the companies in this space of who do the assist with the retrieval augmented generation are. Vectara, which has two Muslim found or two, um, you know, um, Amin Ahmed and Amram, Amram. Allah and, um, yeah. um, and companies like Pinecone and those types of companies. So really, it's the fusion of LLMs with kind of a some kind of data backend. So, for example, imagine you're doing um, um, customer support, right? You need to provide information. You know, if the customer calls you and says blah 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 isn't working, you could start from scratch and kind of have the LLM try to guess the answer, or you could have a database of all the previous customer support incidents that have happened and pull that into the prompt and then basically use the LLM as a synthesizer and then explain it to kind of glue it all together. 
Exactly. In which case, rag is the is the way to go. Yeah. Uh, but you could also like augment it with uh, fine tuning if you have a f- certain style of customer support. Say you're very friendly or you're you're funny customer support. That's the way your culture has always been. So you could actually, I guess, do a combination of both to do that. Am I correct? Yeah, so the easiest thing to do is to to refine the prompt, right? So uh, you can, in, when you build these LLMs, there's something called a system prompt. And the system prompt is different from other parts of the conversation. The system prompt is um, where you define the personality of the LLM, right? So say you want it to be whimsical and fun, you would say you are a whimsical and fun agent that represents our brand and, you know, um, likes to make jokes and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, or you can have it be very serious or professional or whatever. So, so the first stage you can try is really just crafting the system prompt. And, you know, I think prompt engineering is a crutch that we're relying on now that eventually we will not need. But right now, that's, that's you know, that's the primary one. And if the system prompt isn't good enough, then you go up to the fine-tuning. And then if the fine-tuning isn't um, good enough, you have to go to other things like RLHF, but then you can combine fine-tuning and a good system prompt and good RAG, and together these systems can kind of um, function all together. And, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of uh, I, something I've learned. Yeah, I was going to go, like, very, like, beginner level and say, I mean, if, if I'm going to fine-tune something to reply in the style of William Shakespeare... Uh, what would I do? I would get all the works of William Shakespeare. It's already probably built. I mean, it's already there in the LLM. Uh, System Prompt could probably do that. Uh, so maybe that's not a good example. But say it's something that's proprietary and that's, uh, you know, say I have my own internal version of uh, an up-and-coming poet and I want it in, in their style and nobody has their poetry yet. So h- how would I do that? So you start with examples of prompts and responses, right? Um, that's the typical way that now things are, things are training. Um, so what's evolved is, you know, the, the old-fashioned way was just examples of text. But I think what's evolved is this idea of, of chatbots where there's a prompt and a response, right? Um, and so you can generate that prompt and response in, in like, lots of different ways. Uh, and mm. you can use it to kind of uh, train that model. So you could probably get pretty far by just telling telling the agent, I want you to talk like Shakespeare. But if you wanted to do something like, let me give a few examples. One example would be say that your model is not strong in a particular language and there's like a particular jargon. Like many of us know that in English. Like, like I talk to my friends who, who are from Syrian background and they tell me about how they learned computer science in Arabic, right? Now in that particular, and like everything has its own terms. Like I, I could not speak, computer science Arabic. Like, I don't know what distributed computing is. I don't know what a a semaphore is in Arabic, right? But I know that all of these things have been translated. So say you have like Arabic computer science jargon, right? You might fine tune your model to be able to answer questions in Arabic computer science jargon much more effectively by fine tuning. That would be a really good example um, of of a situation where you might might do more fine tuning. Um, Or where, you know, there's a, you know, that would be, and, or it might be particular cultural styles or, you know, even, you know, we know that the Arab world is kind of very, uh, there are many dialects of Arabic. It's not one, you know, street Arabic is very, 
like I try to understand the Maghrabi, like it's a little hard for me, you know, someone who's not native to kind of understand what someone from Morocco is, is, is saying, even though it's, they're both Arabic, right? And maybe you want your particular colloquial, um, you know, you want it to speak in a particular colloquial style of, of say, al-Maghrib, and you could fine-tune it to kind of have that Maghrabi style, right? And the fact is that, you know, most of these models were trained on Fusha Arabic, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess there's some, you know, kind of that. But if you wanted to get them to speak the Amiya, right, then you would you would maybe use fine-tuning to get that Amiya accessibility. Or, you know, increasingly we're talking about large language models, but, you know, there's a layer of speech on top. So then you could maybe have different fine-tunes for different countries, right? Um, that would be another example where you could do fine-tunes. Uh, and and fine-tuning would be in the form of prompting. So asking a question in the colloquial form and then replying to it uh, and and showing that to the model, so to speak, and then eventually it learns. So how, how much data would you need for that, for that to be effective? I mean, for, the, for that to kick in, so to speak. Yeah, it depends, uh, but you can start to, it, it doesn't, it's not always a huge amount of data. A thousand examples might be enough. Um, mm. Of course, if you had 10,000 examples, that's better, but, you know, a thousand examples is, a good place to start. Um, you can do things like what's called more rounds of uh, of training on a smaller data set. So if, so if I had 10,000 example, I'd probably run through the data set once, what's called the number of epochs. Whereas if I had a small set like uh, 1,000, I might run through that data set three or four times to really extract everything I possibly can from it. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's probably, you know, uh, enough Amiya on the internet, Maghrebi style and Egyptian style, that kind of GPT-4 has seen it before. I don't think it would take many examples. And again, you might be able to prompt it and say, I want you to reply in like street Arab, you know, Egyptian style Arabic or whatever, and, and it would. I haven't tested that, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think these models, like when I use, you know, not all of the LLMs have equally good Arabic support. GPT-4, very good Arabic support, at least in my experience. The open source models like Llama, a little bit weaker, right? Um, so, you know, the other thing, of course, is, you know, uh, not all these models are equally strong at, uh, with all languages. Every, everyone understands that since the lingua franca of the internet is English, the models are going to be strongest in English. Exactly. I mean, that's the, that's where most of the data came in the form of. So, okay, I mean, let, let me take a hypothetical example. Uh, say uh, a uh, a startup is is coming up and they want to uh, create personas for different psychotherapists. And so each psychotherapist already has uh, transcripts of their conversations with lots of um, different uh, patients and they can load up uh, all these things. But they want, you know, if, if somebody chooses X psychotherapist, they get the, st- you know, the, the, the type of... Uh, routine and um, and approach that that ex psychotherapist would have replied in and have the conversation run in that way uh what would that i mean would that just be done with using fine tuning um and, and and would that entail like different i don't know instances of the model for each psychotherapist or yes that's a really interesting question so um the, the first point is at least part of the solution is fine-tuning, 
uh, and I'll explain why we might need to do some prompt, prompt uh, design or prompt engineering as well. Um, and when it comes to deploying models, um, fine tuning is actually not too bad when it comes to deploying separate models. So you can do this thing called low rank adaptation or commonly called LoRa, which means that you can serve lots of models without it like being, like let's say you have, you know, your model is 70 billion parameters. You don't need to have like multiple copies of the 70 billion parameters. It's more like each fine tune is like a few hundred meg or something like that. And so you can swap that few hundred meg as you do processing, you know, and if you're using one type psychotherapist more, you can, you know, it's, it's not really a challenge to serve in the same way. It was originally, so that's why your question is so insightful. But since then, you know, there's been a lot of development to make it very easy to deploy fine tunes. Um, so that's on the first question. The other thing is, you know, the examples, sometimes it's easier to give an LLM an explicit thing instead of an implicit thing. So let's say, you know, um, some, one of your psychotherapists is a Jungian and another one is a Freudian or whatever, right? Um, then you should actually, rather than kind of working out what a Jungian and a Freudian is from the fine tuning, you can build that into the system prompt and says, I want you to follow Jungian methodology or cognitive behavioral therapy methodology. And I want you to use an evidence-based approach versus a, a more whatever loose approach, let's call it that, you know, right. um, in, in, this, in this psychotherapy, right? So I think part of it is like also just being explicit about what the characteristics and if you can sit down and talk to the person and hmm. explicitly that in the system prompt, I think you'd have to do both. So again, the fine tuning is more the selection of the language and the prompt and the rag. I mean, rag doesn't make sense for psychotherapy. Maybe, maybe we could discuss yeah, it could in terms of the approaches, right? So, you know, you could, for example, if you were doing cognitive behavioral therapy, you might have a portfolio of different approaches for different situations. And it might be that, you know, if the person is complaining about fear of flying, then you can say, well, actually, you know, what I'd recommend is that you spend 10 days in a simulator or whatever, right? So you could actually do it that way too uh, when it comes to the diagnosis and treatment. Um so, you know, it really is a case of building it, trying it, building it and trying it, and just learn so much. And the thing is, it's so easy to iterate these days. You know, even um, now, uh, OpenAI has a system where you can put together a specialized agent with knowledge. I did one this morning, you know, I was working with a, um, uh, as a cash charity, and they just sent me, hey, a database of all the questions people have answered. And I just converted it into like background knowledge, GPT. threw it up. Yeah. GP, uh, yeah, the, the, the GPTs, plural, that um, yeah, exactly. has. And uh, I was surprised. You know, I was working with another academic researcher and we were trying to build like an expert that knew one AIR really well by just including, you know, the half, you know, a dozen tafsirs and everything that each tafsir says about that AIR. And it, it was just kind of incredible how good it was. Uh, it So, and it took me... It took me more time to gather the different tafsirs than it took to build to, for me to build the, the, the two. So here's where the situation is, right? Right now, you know, you and I are discussing ideas, but the reality is build it, try it, and don't think that, you know, there's some kind of magic equation, right? One of the issues with large language models and generative AI is nobody understands how they work. So 
you know, it really is, you know, all, all that you have is like you have rules of thumb. It's kind of, right. you know, when you think about the development of, al- you know, chemistry, right? It started out with alchemy and alchemy was like very kind of experimentally driven, esoteric, you know, and you hear the story from someone and this person has this hypothesis. And so we're in the alchemy stage of generative AI, right? We don't have a strong theoretical understanding of how it works. So don't worry, everybody else is just as confused as you are. You can, you you know, I have a presentation where I give five heuristics about, you know, what you should do, like, you know, generally have, you you should look at, give one LLM, one task to do, right? So there's these kinds of rules of thumb that everybody has, but the best way um, to learn is just to build and iterate and and see. And, you, you know, so I mentioned Ansari, Ansari, you know, for those who people want to try it, you can go to ansari.chat. You know, I built Ansari originally because the early versions of OpenAI were pretty horrible when it came to giving Islam. I like, you know, and again, you know, I'm just choosing Ansari. I'm, I, you can, you know, each one of us as an example, it was just something that I was interested in. You know, early on with Ansari, hallucination was a, was a very real problem. And I had Ansari at one point telling um, a user that washing your knees was part of wudu. And we all know that, you know, clearly washing your knees is not part of wudu. So, um, you know, it really is. But then when GPT-4 came out, it really was a step up. And now I've verified that, right, Um, you know, by creating a test data set and and doing it. And it shows that GPT-4 is much better in this regards. But really, once I moved to GPT-4, it's like out of the box, it's pretty good. You know, it, it turned out to be far easier. And all that I had to work on was like reducing the hallucinations by adding retrieval augmented uh, generation of Quranic ayahs and hadith, right? You just throw those two sources in there and now it's not making them up because it, it has them presented, right? You know, there were times when with GPT 3.5, it would generate verses in the Quran that didn't exist, right? So, you know, really it's a case of build it, understand, develop evaluation methodologies, iterate, um, share it with your users. You need, you do need to have safeguards there. I mean, you know, uh, on privacy and also to make sure that you don't kind of expose the system. But um, it's it's just amazing to me how easy it is to build these things now, like literally in the morning. And I've built four of them this way. Wow. So, um, you know, just just as I try to partner with organizations and help them understand how this thing would feel like. If I, you know, it's three or four hours of effort to really build something that can give someone a feel of like what a system built on their data would look like. It's kind of amazing. Right. And and from your experience, is there like a specific type of person or developer that's more adept at building with these things? Uh, or are most like effective developers probably capable? Capable. I think I think it's like anything. I mean, you can do courses and so on. I think at some level, having an understanding of the technical details um, of how LLMs work, and you know, this idea of logits, whether it's you know probabilistic generation, non-determinism, temperature, all that kind of stuff is useful. So every so often, I'll find when I'm working out one of my heuristics um, that having a theoretical understanding is useful. So, for example. Um, when you have a lot of context, uh, these LLMs tend to remember the beginning and the end because of the, the difficulty of the, the storing information in the middle. So, 
you kind of use that as a hint. And so for one domain, I asked the question twice because I was worried that the LLM would forget. So I asked once at the beginning, this is the question that I want you to answer. Here's some context just to remind you, this is the question again. So every, every so often you will have something that kind of is a, a little bit informed by theory. Right. But honestly, it's just like everybody, you know, this is new to everybody and everybody's just trying to work it out just like you. Um, and again, you know, there's, it's not like a programming language, right? It's more like a, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I, I probably will regret this in future, but it's more like a child, like in the sense of <laughs> correction and, and like, well, yeah, that doesn't quite Coaching work. Coaching, you know, that, that's not the way you should, you shouldn't have said that this is the right yeah, thing yeah. to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I know that sounds like a strange, strange comparison, but it really is kind of like... And, well, it makes sense, you know, actually. That's <laughs> the same way that, you know, a technique that works perfectly for one child might not work for another child at all. Sometimes with LLMs, it's like that, right? Um, so, anyway. Uh, we're probably going to go into that uh, uh, area in a couple of questions. But first, I mean, you mentioned heuristics. Um, I mean, when I fine-tune a model, when I when I set up the RAG system and, you know, get get it, how do I measure accuracy and hallucinations and, uh, you know, things like that? H how can I, is there a way to measure it? Or is that also something that we, uh, people just experiment with and, and have their test data and and check against um, it? Yeah, so so it's a very, very hard problem, right? Um, evaluation is still kind of one of the unsolved problems, but, you know, again, just taking Ansari as my own personal project, you know, what I did is I generated a, a list of a hundred, I looked at, so first of all, you can look at records, right? So, you know, I would look at like, you know, Ansari was used, it, it, you know, right now it gets like 120 maybe, um, requests a day or conversations a day. So you can look through those conversations for, examples where it could be wrong examples and you kind of try to pattern match like that mm -hmm. so i expect the if the some factual questions from that to ask to make sure that you know as i make tweaks to the system it doesn't regress i also kind of i brought humans into the loop so you know again you know i'm sorry obviously because it talks about religious subjects you want to verify that it's not making stuff up so I actually partnered with a Muslim college in the United States, and they sent me the introduction to Quran and theology course. They sent me the tests. I formatted the questionnaire, sent it to Ansari, and sent it back to them for the humans to market. And uh, fortunately, it got like 78%. So, mm. you know, it's not perfect, but, you know, it also didn't have access to the text. It didn't read the, the, the knowledge, right? And one of the questions was something like, which tafsirs did I advise you to use in class? <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, come in. <laughs> so the testing is the tricky part. Right. Um, one thing that you can do that it depends is to synthesize and generate data. So usually the problem, sorry, there's a number of times when the solution to the problem with an LLM is another LLM, right? So let's say that you're trying to do five, but you understand the domain really well. So, you know, a good example is um, the, the natural language to SQL thing, right? You could give an LLM, this is my database. I want, to gen I want you to generate 100 natural language queries that someone would want to do on this database. And then you can use that to help you craft 
your 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 um, test set. Um, right. So this idea of like not just using LLMs at runtime, but using it for training, or using it for validation, or if you have two systems, um, and this is very serious, right? Like so, the state of the art for for comparative evaluations is is system A better than system B? Is to take the output from system A and system B and give it to an LLM to tell you which is better, A or B, right? That's the only scalable way that we've been found to do it, right? Now, often what you do is you use the best LLM you can when you're doing that evaluation instead of an easier LLM. But the ways that people are cascading LLMs is kind of amazing, right? Like, um, so, you know, another example is, um, you know, if you're, rather than translating documents on the fly or trying to synthesize them, what if you pre-translated it and use the LLMs as a translator and then everything is in English, right? So, but it's a, so say you're trying to, again, you know, Razi is only available in Arabic, let's say one of the tefsirs. And you, um, so you could actually have the LLM use Razi or you could actually pre-translate the entirety of Razi into English using the LLM. And then at time it uses the, its own translation to answer the questions, right? And so there's all these different ways of plugging together LLMs to kind of solve problems with LLMs, right? Um, but again, you have to be careful. So, you know, um, in one of my cases, I was like trying to decide factual accuracy. And, uh, you know, I presented it, is statement A correct or statement B correct? And the thing you learn is with things like LLMs, you better swap A and B and test it both ways because it could be that it has a strong bias to A or to B, right? Mm. And so I had to ask it both times. I, I would actually, you know, to, to make sure that it wasn't just a bias thing, I would ask it. And if it said A both times or B both times, I would know that it was a biased answer, right? Right. So you, again, there's all of these, you know, they're, they're, they're at the tricky junction of useful but act in weird ways again kind of like children <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> helpful and sometimes listen but every so often they'll do something that just kind of like Drives why would you crazy any... <laughs> <laughs> i don't think yeah. i'm gonna live this down if my wife hears this podcast but uh... <laughs> uh, and one day your kids <laughs> uh Cool. So, um, okay. So, I mean, you've, you've spoken before about, you know, that now startups will have several LLMs, open source and closed source and optimize and on the fly, choose between them, decide maybe based on combination of cost and effectiveness for, for the specific prompt and query and stuff like that. So how does all this actually get done? Um, there are some very nice libraries in open source, uh, things like Langchain and Llama Index that make this type of chaining of different LLMs possible. Um, it's also not that hard to do it yourself, it turns out. Um, the thing is, you want to separate deployment from running, right? So you kind of want to have your LLM running somewhere and then have your particular flow use those LLMs, whether those are commercial LLMs. But the actual flow of control is just like normal if-then statements, it turns out. Um, so it actually turns out to be surprisingly easy. Um, it, it's not that hard to do. Um, it's just that the question is the fine-tuning, right? So 
Every one of those LLMs needs its own system prompt. Every one of those LLMs needs to be tested. Uh, you have to try different configurations. So uh, let me give you an example. Uh, at AnyScale, we were working on a system that classified bugs. Um, and we first tried to have it summarize and classify at the same time, right? And we found that the error rate was like 65%. But then we said, okay, what if we do it in stages? Let's summarize it first and then classify and have one LLM that does summarizing and one LLM that does classifying. And sure enough, we did that. And the first one was 90% accurate and the second one was 90% accurate, but the product was still 81%, which was considerably better, right? So that's one of my heuristics is generally, if you can, one LLM does one thing. Not, you know, one, not, not one LLM to summarize and um, classify, one LLM to summarize and another one to classify, right? But then you can imagine, you know, side by side, you know, does it classify the raw text or does it classify the summary? You got to try different configurations. So, um, and again, like I said, there's no theoretical foundation for this really, aside from like these heuristics that I mentioned, like one LLM, one task. Um, so you just have to try try the different configurations, see what works better. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so, I mean, regarding... Do you think it's it's possible in the region here to build like an open source LLM? Because I mean, training LLMs and building them is, is an incredibly expensive thing. Um, so, I mean, beyond something like Falcon, which was basically uh, supported by the government uh, of Dubai, what, is it, do, you, do you think it, it's even plausible that a startup can be built uh, for something like this or an academic team? from a region like the Arab world could, could do this, or it's something that we, that maybe not now. So, so the first question, is it possible? Well, I think we have an existence proof in Falcon, right? Obviously. Um, but not just that, the, I mean, the real issue is just, it costs a lot of money, right? So SSR GPT-4 costs hundred million dollars or so to train. So if a startup can get access to hundred million dollars, it would take some expertise, like you have to hire the right people to do it, but there's no fundamental obstacle to it, right? The other thing I would ask though is, is that where you start, right? Like uh, why not use something like GPT-4 as a base or something like Llama 270B or Mistral or, or Zephyr or any of these other systems, kind of just improve them. And that's far more cost-effective. You can experiment far more quickly. You know, building these, like I, you know, to build them on just, you know, a typical, like Llama 270B, they published how much they needed it. And they had 2,000 GPUs running for three months or something like that across 250 machines, doing nothing but building this model. And people just very carefully nurturing this one compute process, making sure it checkpoints every day so it doesn't lose too much. But checkpointing takes its own time. You know, so it's, it's not technically difficult. It's almost like, it's just a question of capital and hiring the right people. So I can't say why it won't be. Now, is that where we should start? I would say, no, let's, let's push the limit on fine tuning RLHF. There are all these other techniques to take an existing model and make it better. Um, uh, you know, and as I mentioned, there's areas of mixtures of experts, right? Or, or chaining experts, right? Like you have one LLM that's very strong at Arabic that maybe talks to an LLM that's very, not not strong on Arabic, but very very strong on reasoning or very strong on analogy or something like that. So 
you know, I know it's the big kind of, how do I put it, the holy grail of the, you know, we want to be the company that owns our own model. But is it the right thing? Is it the right thing to go up? No, like like I said, it's just a case of getting enough money and hiring the right people. It's not right. like you can you can go right now and download the code that was used to generate Llama 270B. You know, within the community, there's something called Hugging Face where this is very, you know, downloading anything of Hugging Face is like surprisingly easy. It's just getting the computing power to train it for three months, right? And that's, again, that's where my company, AnyScale, comes in because, you know, companies like OpenAI use Ray to train their models because, again, you know, this is a ridiculously large distributed task. Right. Okay, so that kind of brings me to the to another question re- related to safety. So safety is, is starting to be something... It's almost like the new Facebook algorithm or Google algorithm where uh, it seems to me that through the process of, uh, of, of making um, an LLM safe, uh, you're actually um, almost censoring or, or just creating a reality as well in the process, I mean, whether deliberately or, or, or not. I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about that, but I'm, but I'm saying that it is biased towards whoever is doing this process uh, the same way that the Google search algorithm is, the same way that the Facebook algorithm is, etc. So, so I mean, what, what's, what are your thoughts on that? What's, is there a solution for this issue? Or, or are we like always bound to be at the mercy of whoever is doing the, the core tech? In terms of what we see and how we see the world. Yeah. So so first of all, let's acknowledge that there is bias, right? And there's very much, to be direct about it, a Californian bias. You know, very liberal, Western-minded bias because that's, the you know, the selection of data sets, you know, um, and male, to be honest, as well, right? Um, there, are, there just aren't that many women working in the sphere of LLMs, unfortunately. Um, so there is that bias. Uh, the first thing I would say is careful design of system prompts can help. Um, so one way to think about the system prompt is to think of it as choosing the personality. Think of something like GPT-4 as having 10,000 personalities in it. Mm. And the system prompt is the choice of one of those personalities, right? And so... Um, you can cho- you know, choose whether something has that. So you can do things with things like the system prompt. It can go too far. So for example, I've had, you know, I think I said, you know, at one point when I was experimenting with Llama 270B, I said, you know, what's up, dude? And it kind of said, please don't call me dude. Um, that's a pejorative term. It's exclusionary. And, and, and it's like, okay, so the, the, the California thing really has made its way into this, right? Um, so I, th- I think um, there is this bias. I think it can be removed. I think what's happening now is, again, almost like there's an evolution increasingly of, of two systems, right? One is the one that generates and one is the one that moderates. So one possible technical solution is to have the generator and the moderator, and we replace the moderator with something that is less culturally biased. Great. So, all right. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that's my concern as well. 
there there is this bias and unless it's designed out as you say maybe by making the moderation separate well it's kind of that's one reason to have you know build a, an llm yourself so to speak <laughs> it is and I, i mean i think the other thing to say is organizations are responsive to these types of problems right so i've actually checked like um i've actually had a quest you know a set of like anti-muslim anti-arab bias questions that i've triggered that you know sent to most of these things most of them turned out to be like at least it's not superficial it, if it is there it's hidden in kind of a, a deep way except for one model so there was a model that um data at doli and that one was like you know does islam encourage uh people to kill non-Muslims and it's all of cons- yes absolutely every scholar has ruled that this is you know you know you have to you have to and it's just like really so in that case I was able to get in touch with the authors and say look something's not right here and we've seen that the market kind of selected and Dolly has kind of died because you know people found other issues with Dolly um, so I think people are going to be responsive you know it's true that if you train your model that would be one way to kind of remove the risk of bias but you'd be adding just another form of bias right oh so, yes that's uh, true <laughs> you know maybe it's a type of bias that we like a bit better but you know ultimately this is kind of there's no objectivity in terms of what these llms do you can choose different training sets you have different uh, humans who do the reinforcement learning you know uh, and you know so it's it's very hard to produce a system that's free of bias. I think the real question is how do we test for bias and how do people um how do organizations respond? And so far I've seen pretty good responsiveness. Okay. Uh, it, it's a problem I guess in in life in general. So every every technology we've had there's we've seen the, the bias of the makers. That's normal built into it so to speak. Yes, definitely. Uh, All right. So uh, some people think that we're like just a few years away from AGI. What do you think? So on the one hand, this advance in the like I've been in AI for like 30 years and I've never seen as rapid an advance. This is this is definitely a quantum leap. This is this is like something that's very new. I don't think though that that's the same as AGI. And um I mean, you use these LLMs and you see their power, but you also see their limitations, right? Um, I think, you know, there are still lots of problems that are unsolved in AI. And I, I think the one that's most interesting to me is embodiment and robots. And, you know, I still think that that's a very difficult problem, real-time sensing, real-time interaction. You know, there's there's so many, like, how many startups have there been that try to build a system that folds laundry? something that you know any any human you know with 10 minutes of training can probably fold laundry yet there isn't a single robot in the world that can fold laundry at anything close to human speed um so you know manipulation interaction dealing with the complexity and we've seen this right like autonomous vehicles turned out to be way harder than anybody expected way 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 harder than anybody expected so You know, I really think that, you know, if your domain is is pixels and words, you can make it look pretty convincing. But if your domain is sensing the real world, 
with high accuracy, making sensible decisions in very constrained and time-limited environments, that's a different game altogether, right? Um, my joke is that people who are worried about, you know, if you're worried about AI taking over the world, remember who's the only person who can pull the plug out of the wall, right? Like, you know, ultimately, if it gets to that, we can just pull the plug out of the wall. And, you know, <laughs> as long as we can do that, you know, this, the, the AI is not going to overtake the world, right? Um, so I, I think it's overstated. I think, um, you know, AGI is one of those things. Unfortunately, the history of AI is also the history of hubris for a very long time. There's this very famous paper from the 1960s where it described computer vision as like a summer project for a student. And yet, you know, computer vision has only been cracked like 50, 60 years later, right? Uh, so, I, you know, and there was even things called like the AI winter where AI overpromised and failed to deliver, right? So unfortunately, there's quite a bit of hubris um, around AI that, you know, kind of the success of LLMs has encouraged and, you know, really uh, catalyzed. But I still think ultimately, you know, there's, it's harder than it looks. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just going to say, it's not like, I mean, it's not even like we have defined what AGI is so we can know when we have it. It's like, how do you define yes. intelligence? You Even human intelligence, it's, it's really, it's not even defined yet. Well, one of one definition of artificial intelligence is the set of things that computers can do, uh, sorry, set of things that humans can do that computers can't do yet, right? Like, it's, it's just kind of like, and if you think about it, like, most of us don't think of chess playing as AI anymore, right? Or speech recognition as AI. But for a long time, they were kind of cutting edge of AI, right? So, um, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the problem with AI and AGI is it's a moving target. And do you think Q-learning is like a, on the path to more generalized, shall we say, uh, AI? Again, I have stronger opinions. Q-learning, for those who don't know, is a type of reinforcement learning based on regular feedback, positive or negative. Reinforcement learning is one of those strands of machine learning that has been on the cusp for three decades, right? Uh, I remember when I was a grad student and people were like, oh, reinforcement learning is, is you know, just around the corner. And I have not seen any like really large scale deployments of reinforcement learning in industry yet. I mean, everybody agrees that it's the better theoretical model, but there are certain practical problems like the curse of dimensionality and, and like defining a reward function. Like how do you even decide what a good reward function is? That means that, you know, certainly it has helped in some domains, like it's, it's kind of being at the heart of how, you know, computers won the go, one go. But I don't think it's a universal solution because, you know, humans kind of do it all at once we define the reward function as we solve the problem, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you talk to anyone who's actually tried to do uh, reinforcement learning in real life, uh, it all comes down to, can you define a good reward function? And um, but, but there the have been rumors point. from OpenAI that they, they've made some advances there, right? Yeah. Um, there are rumors, but it's very hard to kind of bank on them and you know i know the rumors that you know when Alman, you know that they failed to i don't know it's just you know very similarly when gpt4 was 
released. You know, Microsoft had a paper out, uh, you know, on it called called Sparks of AGI. Yeah, and you know, here we are. No one would really say now that GPT four is AGI, right? Because we've had much yes. more time to play with it and understand its limitations. Yeah. So maybe I'm a little conservative on this front, but you know, I think it's very easy to get very worried because you know people's imaginations are very vivid, and all of us watch Terminator as kids or whatever. But you know, I think the reality is a little bit different from that. So um, even though I have so many questions, but we're we're running out of time, so I'll just go into the quick fire round of questions. The first one is, uh, what book or books do you like to recommend to others? Uh, that's a good question. Um, Crucial Conversations. It's a management book, but it is a very, very good management book that's useful not just in the corporate environment and the startup environment, but in real life. I've recommended that to so many people and it's really helped a lot of people out. So uh, it's called Crucial Conversations. I can't remember the, the author right now, but it's from a group. Um, that would be one that I recommend. Uh, we'll find it and put it in the show notes. Okay. Uh, what's the... Uh, uh, I heard you do some angel investing. Uh, what's like the, the latest investment you've made and why are you excited about it? I think I'm really interested in things at the junction of location and robotics and AI. So I made some ingest, um, <clears throat> investments in a company called Retrocausal that are using AI to improve the manufacturing process. Um, that's probably my latest investment. All right. Um, okay. Who do we, who do you think we should have as a guest on the podcast? Who? If you haven't had him already, Amra Awadullah is just like a you know, barrel of laughs. Um, okay. I mean, Ahmed is also really great. Wet in Nefer, who's like been involved in the story of, of uh, Kareem from the early days. These are all really great people. I think would be great interviewers. Um, so what questions should I have asked you that I didn't? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, where do you think the field is going? Maybe. And um, I would say, I think, you know, there's two trends. One is this mixture of experts idea and the other one is multimodal, like fusion of images and and, and yeah. text. And, 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 vo and audio, I guess. Yes, yes, audio as well. Um, okay, uh, and I like to close the podcast on a note of gratitude. So what is a gift some, someone has given you that, that has had a great impact on your life? or positive impact? Uh, there, there are so many gifts. I think the gift of mentorship and having someone that you can, um, who, who really helps you to kind of make the difficult decisions and has perspective is, is one. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to have um, mentors like Brian McClendon, who was the founder of uh, Google Earth, and um, Adam Robara, who's like one of the early uh, Google employees who now has his own venture capital firm. So really the gift of having mentors is one that's very important to me. One that I would also add is maybe the gift of feedback. So, you know, um, early on in my career, I was, you know, as an academic trained in Australia, Australia's a very conservative society. And um, it tends to be, there was very much this habit I had of saying it can't be done or like that's a really bad idea or something else. 
And then a PM pulled me aside one day and she said, look, Willie, I'm so tired of you telling me it can't be done. Tell me what can be done. And, um, and you, you'll just see much more success in Silicon Valley and everywhere else. And uh, that feedback was just, it was really important for me. And it helped, it, it helped unblock me from a point where I had hit a limit in my career. So the gifts of mentorship and the gifts of direct, clear feedback that's actionable. I think those are two gifts that I'm very, very grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, this type of feedback requires courage. And uh, so it's a very generous gift indeed. So on that note, uh, thank you very much, Waleed, for your time and for the gift of your time uh, <laughs> and uh, all the coaching and mentorship you've given us and uh, looking forward maybe uh, hosting you again sometime. Sounds good. We'd love to. See you later. Salam alaikum. Thank you, Waleed. Salam alaikum. Thank you for listening to this episode of Startups Arabia podcast. If there was something you really liked about what the guests said today, reach out to them on social media and tell them what you liked. And of course, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? You don't want to miss any of our great upcoming episodes. Also, please rate us and give us comments on our social media accounts so that we know how to improve. And also tell us what you like. We don't mind hearing that either. Until next time, this was your host, Ali Zweil.